0: Okay, welcome everybody. I'm Mary Caldor and I run the Civil Society and Human Security Research Unit. And I'm really pleased today to welcome John Tierman to talk about his new book, which I actually think is a very important book. It's called The Death of Others, which is a great title, by the way. Just a word about John, I mean I've known John for a very long time. (laughs) We go back to the peace movement of the 1980s when he was editing a magazine called Nuclear Times and he's now, you know, he has a a history both as somebody who's been very engaged but also an academic and he's now Executive Director of the Centre for International Studies at MIT in Cambridge, Mass. and, um, but I, I just wanted to say I'm really pleased to invite him not because of the history but because I think this is a really important book um, as many people will know a very big preoccupation of some of our research is with the way in which in contemporary wars civilians are the main victims and in fact nobody measures civilian casualties. That we know exactly how many regular soldiers die in Afghanistan and Iraq, but we have absolutely no idea. We have a little bit of a better idea now in Afghanistan that the United Nations has started counting it, but we still don't really know. And there's a sense in which people, civilians far away, somehow don't count. And I think this is what John has explained marvelously in this book, and I won't say more about it because I'll leave it to him to talk about it.
1: Thank you, Mary, and thank you for coming out tonight. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I spoke yesterday at Oxford University, and so I'm, I'm, um, I'm really delighted to, to be able to speak to several audiences here. Um, A word first about how I came to write this book because it's relevant to what I wrote about. Um, I was involved in 2003-2004 with um, being very watchful, I guess, uh, about how the reporting on the Iraq War frame the issue of civilian casualties, treatment of civilians, and so on. And I realized very quickly that there wasn't much mention of civilians, and there wasn't much uh, in the way of uh, either news reporting or feature reporting in the American media, uh, even as the insurgencies began uh, and it became uh, really a civil war. Around 2000, uh, the autumn of 2004, an article appeared in The Lancet um, that was the mortality survey, mortality study that the uh, Johns Hopkins scientists um, organized in Iraq, which found 100,000 people, an estimate of 100,000 people, um, civilians and fighters, had, had died. Uh, in the first 18 months of the war. And I found this a fascinating figure because, among other things, it seemed to explain a lot about the war and particularly the insurgencies. Um, and of course, it was, a, uh, I thought, an important um, point of moral reference for the debate about the war uh, in the United States. Um, So I I got in touch with the authors, uh, and particularly Les Roberts, who was the PI on the study, um, to ask him more about it, because it it, it just came and went very quickly in the news media in the United States, got very little attention. Um, He gave a talk at MIT. We got to know each other a bit and I realized that one thing that I could do that would be uh, potentially significant would be to commission another study. I had some money at MIT I could I could use for that, uh, raised a little bit more. Uh, I was determined to do a better job with the public education aspect of the survey. Um, and so we went forward with the Hopkins scientists again, this time it was Gilbert Burnham who was the PI, um, an M.D. and Ph.D. In, in public health, also at Hopkins. Um, and in the uh, spring of 2006, they went into the field to do the household survey. We can talk about the methods of estimate, uh, estimates later if you'd like. It's a little complicated and time-consuming, but I think it's it's also uh, quite revealing and important. In any case, they came up with, uh, their estimate then was 600 thousand had died by violence in Iraq uh, in the first three and a half years of the war. and This was a shocking number that um, I even found shocking, and one that created quite a stir uh, in the United States. The article was again published in The Lancet. President Bush was asked about it at a press conference the day after it was released. Um, and he, his his response was that the method had pretty much been discredited in his words, which uh, uh, was the first time I knew that, that President Bush was an epidemiologist in addition to being <laughs> a brilliant uh, president. but in any case, um, it this got me deeply into the into the the question about civilian casualties because again, I felt that the survey had a lot to say about about how the war was being conducted, how the, um, uh, you, you know, the, what the, what the, the uh, uh, results, the data told us about the war, and the reaction in the United States also taught us something about how official uh, government uh, types, policy types, and the general public responded to this, to these shocking numbers, and it was all rather troubling, I thought. So um, I went out to, uh, uh, w- with a proposal, and my editor at Oxford University Press and um, sort of negotiating a contract. said he really wanted me to do all American wars, talk about civilian casualties in all American wars. And we negotiated it down <laughs> to post-World War II wars. So this book covers uh, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, and uh, the Afghan War. Now. Uh, just one more word about that, and that is each of these wars actually exhibits the same pattern. The same pattern of public attitudes in particular, also the same pattern of how the u s military and political leaders in the United States um, uh, treat civilians how the military how the military's policies and practices result in large civilian casualties. Um, So I'm glad, ultimately, that I was uh, able to go back and look at these other wars. It's also true in Afghanistan, although Afghanistan is a much lower level of violence, but I think the same patterns persist. So that's how I started. And this is the first thing to know about these wars, how many people died. These are estimates. The estimates get a little bit more refined uh, for the more recent war, but uh, the estimate for Korea is 3 million dead, 2 to 4 million in Vietnam, and as as many as 1 million in Iraq. The question is why, how, and what are the consequences of these large Uh, these large numbers of dead, And again, those those numbers were for all people, not just civilians, but I'm particularly concerned about civilians. And so I propose three different arguments that are related, three propositions that we'll go through one by one. First, many civilians in these wars die as a result of U.S. war policies and practices. This is a, this may seem apparent to you, but this is a controversial thing to say, particularly in the United States. We'll go back over these in some detail. Second, these large numbers of casualties have consequences for the war, for America's reputation, and of course for the populations at risk. And third, the American public is essentially indifferent to these casualties, an indifference which also has consequences also a controversial statement. So, I'm not going to present lots of gruesome pictures, but this one I thought was particularly striking when I saw it. This was on the front page of the New York Times when it appeared. I can't quite remember when. I believe it was in 2006. This is a little girl, an Iraqi girl, whose family had been stopped at a roadblock or an attempt to stop them at a roadblock I think there were about seven or eight people in the car, and everybody was killed except her by the U.S. Marines. Um, This was the only time that I'm aware of that such a picture appeared uh, on the front page of the New York Times, but in any case, the question is about the civilians and uh, civilian casualties and U.S. policies. So how do, th- how do things like that happen? How do millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people in these wars who are not combatants uh, end up dead? And, of course, there are many people who have been displaced, immiserated in various ways, uh, widowed, orphaned, etc. And um, how does it happen? Well, we'll go back over some of these things again, but just very quickly... The, the practices and the policies include things like house-to-house searches, village searches, patrols, in which um, rules of engagement are very loose in, uh, in Iraq and, and Vietnam particularly. Korea was slightly different in terms of its, how people were killed. I'll get to that. Roadblocks, protection of convoys, uh, use of artillery, so-called harassment and interdiction fire, Uh, which can be very long-range use of artillery uh, into civilian areas. Air strikes uh, in Vietnam and Korea particularly important. I'll get back to that. And most importantly here, a policy of force protection, uh, which is uh, the rules of engagement for U.S. forces is that the the paramount objective is to protect the force, to protect the troops. It's just as important as the mission itself. Uh, This is partly a result of what happened in Vietnam where there was a very high U.S. casualties, Um, but this results in uh, a tremendous amount of firepower being used in situations where there's some reason to believe that U.S. forces are at risk. And often, for example, a patrol we will take some fire a couple of rounds uh, from a a building and all hell will break loose as they bring in airstrikes and other things, and we'll come to that again. So there are two aspects of this policy that I think we can identify fairly clearly as things that result in high levels of civilian casualties. One is attitudes, the other is practices. So let me just illustrate a couple of attitudes that I think are quite uh, revealing. In a 2006 survey of U.S. troops in Iraq, uh, this was an internal survey, uh, one-third of Marines and one-quarter of soldiers said their leaders failed to tell them not to mistreat civilians. Now, this can't literally be true because there is training in which the laws of war are supposedly taught to the troops, but the fact is that they get very little uh, time in, in comparison with their total training, it's not very well retained, and it doesn't have, in some accounts, does not have um, uh, the kind of uh, applicability to real-world situations when they get into the, uh, the so-called fog of war. So a large number of soldiers think it's okay to mistreat civilians. Similar uh, survey done by the U.S. Army. Uh, in Iraq, again, 38 percent of Marines and 47 percent of soldiers said non-combatants should be treated with dignity and respect, which means that 62 percent of Marines and 53 percent of soldiers apparently believe that they're not going to be treated with dignity and respect. Now, you remember that there are something like two million soldiers have gone through Iraq, soldiers and Marines, so you're talking about literally hundreds of thousands of marines and soldiers who have these attitudes in the same survey more than a third said torture of civilians was permissible to get information and 17 percent viewed all civilians as insurgents 17 percent viewed all civilians as insurgents 17 percent of 2 million is 340,000 soldiers and marines believe that every civilian is an insurgent, so you can draw your own conclusions. So These are, the, these are among attitudes. There are many others that um, are also very troubling, but this, I think, illustrates the point. This is not just um, attitudes that prevailed during Iraq uh, in the, during the Vietnam War. A survey of officer candidates in 1967 found that half were willing to use torture to get information and 15% did not understand the rules of war, including the protection of civilians. So attitudes on the ground, particularly among the officer corps, I think, is very consequential for the civilians in the theaters of war. Practices. Uh, What practices are responsible for large civilian casualties? I don't think that the U.S. military sets out to kill civilians. It's certainly not what they profess, and I think it's true. I don't think that that's really the objective in many of these cases. There have been practices, Um, strategic bombing during the Second World War, uh, which, which Britain was very much part of in Germany, particularly, you'll recall, the summit at Casablanca where Roosevelt and Churchill um, agreed to the policy of strategic bombing which included bombing civilian areas of cities uh, which they called terror bombing in fact. and uh, Hamburg and Dresden are the ones that are most remembered in Germany but there were 60 cities in Germany that were bombed that way with fire bombing, napalm. And there were 60 cities in in Japan, which were also bombed that way. Um, Tokyo, of course, the raid on Tokyo was the most infamous of those. 180,000 people were killed in one night on the raid on Tokyo. That was a U.S. raid. And, um, of course, there was the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now, this was viewed, although it was controversial within the sort of the... uh, within the military to some extent and and um, civilian leadership that is controversial as to whether strategic bombing actually worked in World War II, strategic bombing was also applied in Korea. Um, I don't know how much you know of the Korean War. It's not actually a very well-known war, uh, even in the United States. Britain did participate in it. Um, there was a great deal of uh, on-the-ground fighting for the first year. Uh, North Korea invaded South Korea. They went up and down the peninsula, um, finally ending up pretty much where they started, 38th parallel. And for the next two years, uh, the United States commenced a strategic bombing of North Korea. They'd actually started earlier, but that was basically what they did for two years, and Curtis LeMay, so a sort of notorious uh, Air Force general in the United States said they didn't leave a building standing in North Korea. So most of the civilian casualties came from the practice of strategic bombing, which was a legacy of the Second World War. Bombing also was important in South Korea, uh, in South Vietnam during the Vietnam War, along with things like forest resettlement, search and destroy missions, very similar to the operations in Iraq. Um, and bombing in Cambodia uh, uh, created uh, an enormous number of casualties. This picture is um, the application of the defoliant, which came to be known as Agent Orange, um, which was a tactic used to, um, which was used to expose the enemy, expose the Viet Cong. Uh, by uh, by basically destroying the forest, but they also—this was an extremely toxic chemical that caused many thousands of casualties, and it's still uh, an issue in Vietnam. Um, in Iraq, as I mentioned earlier, house to house—oh, um, I wanted to say also, in Vietnam, um, you recall there was also strategic bombing of North Vietnam and most— infamously the strategic bombing um, near the end of the war when Nixon was trying to force a peace settlement on the, uh, on the Vietnamese. Um, but that bombing actually did not cause most of the casualties of the war because the North Vietnamese had very uh, adeptly evacuated Hanoi, uh, and people were scattered around the north. So there was no concentrated population uh, that could be damaged. About 100,000 people were killed. It was not trivial, but it was not, when you consider that 2 to 4 million people died in Vietnam, um, it's a relatively small number. Most of the bombing, most of the killing in Vietnam was from bombing in the south, U.S. bombing in the south, um, which totaled more, more ordnance was dropped in South Vietnam than in all of World War II. A lot of people died. Um, So Iraq, uh, one quick word about what I'm saying here about too few troops. Mary and I were talking about this just before we came in. You may recall that in the United States, just before the war, there was was an argument about uh, at the highest levels of government about how many troops would be committed to the war. And an Army Chief of Staff named General Shinseki had testified before Congress that there should be half a million troops in the invasion and occupation force. Um, That was too many, according to Donald Rumsfeld, and he was fired. And so the United States instead went in with a much, much smaller force, 150,000 approximately, and that was also the occupation force when occupation became necessary, in their view. Um, This created a situation in which there weren't enough troops to conduct a counterinsurgency operation when, when the time came. That is, counterinsurgency requires troops to be in villages to make... Relationships with the villagers, uh, speak the language, convince them that you are there to provide security for them. Um, but when there aren't enough troops, then what happens is that there are patrols that go around and visit the, these villages occasionally looking for bad guys. And when they catch a little uh, fire, some rounds of fire, they would bring in airstrikes, helicopter strikes, uh, more troops, Um, and a great deal of firepower uh, was applied. So too few troops meant more firepower and I think more civilian casualties. Um, This is debatable, but I think certainly a plausible argument. Um, And by the same token, too few troops meant there was a failure to provide security when the conflict really became a civil war between Sunnis and Shia. Um, One is obligated as an occupier uh, under Geneva Conventions to provide security, and the United States did not do that. The outcomes of these, as I mentioned earlier, three million dead in Korea is the best estimate or the common estimate. Three years, it was a very bloody war. Between one and one and a half millions of those were civilians. In Vietnam, two to four million dead, about half civilians, by many estimates, five million displaced, um, 750,000 dead in Cambodia, mostly by U.S. bombing. And in Iraq, 500,000 excess deaths in the sanctions period, I treat the Iraq war as a continuous war from 1990 to 19, to, to the current moment that, that we really we had a war in, in 1991 but then we had 12 years of sanctions which took a tremendous toll on the civilian population and then the, the next hot war began in 2003. Uh, overall about a half a million excess deaths were estimated for the sanctions period. Um, I'm estimating 700,000 or more from the 2003 war and the UN says there are 5 million displaced. So quite large consequences for the civilian population. The second proposition, these large numbers of casualties have consequences for the war, for America's reputation, and for the populations at risk. So the first point here, high mortality affects management of conflict. And I think that the, uh, the, the principal lesson from what we know about how many people died and how the war was conducted was that um, there were so many people who were being roughed up or killed by the coalition forces or by other Iraqis uh, that it actually stimulated uh, the insurgencies that then had to be contained. Um, A number of people have discussed this. At the beginning of the war, it was assumed that the insurgencies were springing up because of uh, uh, status reversal of the Sunni Arabs. Uh, but I didn't think that that really sufficiently explained. The Sunni Arabs had been on top in Iraq for many, many decades, going back to the Ottoman period, pre-World War I. And, uh, of course, Saddam Hussein was was Sunni, and they, of, co- of course, did not like the idea that their leader had been deposed and so on. So there was this, there was this common assumption among many People who follow these things that that it was status reversal that caused the uh, the insurgencies. I think he was much more about the way the u s fought the war and uh, conducted conducted its operations and, and the reaction to those operations so for example um, the you know, Sunni and Shia society in in the Arab part of Iraq, also true in the Kurdish areas, um, are very dense kinship networks, social networks, in which people feel obligated to defend their communities. And we got this notion from um, interviews that a number of academics have done with people who were arrested um, and detained. Some of them failed suicide bombers, others simply fighters and they would describe their actions as, as being defensive. They believed they were defending their communities. Now, we could take issue with whether or not that's subjectively correct, but that's what they believed overwhelmingly. So when the United States would go into these villages or other coalition forces or the Iraqi army when it was reformulated and um, would detain people, would rough them up, would occasionally kill them, uh, a lot more insurgents were being formed, basically, recruited by those actions. And this was finally acknowledged by the U.S. military when General Petraeus rewrote the field manual in 2006. Um, he basically acknowledged that that the United States was mistreating the civilians in this way and it was creating more security problems than it was solving. Um, and this was explained, I think, most uh, most directly by uh, high mortality. Um, along with that, of course, the local populations, because of high mortality, broadly perceived that they were insecure. Many of them left. A lot of people went to Jordan and, um, and Syria uh, in the millions, uh, mainly out of security concerns. And of course, by about 2005, 2006, it began to turn into a civil war. Um, Finally, uh, in terms of the conflict, we had a lot of interference from neighbors, and this was also, I think, a result of the sheer violence of the war. You had Saudi Arabia supporting certain groups, you had Syria uh, supporting certain groups, you had Iran supporting uh, the Shia. Um, A lot of involvement, regional involvement, that continued to fuel the, um, the war. So high mortality had tremendous impact on how the United States managed the conflict or failed to manage it.
2: High mortality
1: affects America's reputation. I think it's fairly obvious a reputational cost of a lot of people are dying in a war that was fought on false premises particularly. And um, this quotation is from a Pew research poll, a global poll, Uh, done in 2008 or 2009 uh, growing anti-Americanism in much of the world including in Europe. Remarkably enough this graph shows uh, almost uh, exact kind of uh, confluence of attitudes and what was happening in Iraq. Uh, France, Spain, Germany, and here. Um, So anti-Americanism, and if you talk just anecdotally, I talk to a lot of people from around the world and especially from the developing world, Pakistan, India, Africa, and they would often express this kind of concern about what was happening to um, civilians in Iraq, much more salient issue abroad than it was in the United States. And then, of course, the high mortality affects war societies itself. Uh, This may go without saying, but but I think it's important to note that it's not just mortality, it's also the destruction of infrastructure, of healthcare systems, of water systems, of education systems, of industry, Um, you know, the very, very significant scale of destruction in Iraq and Afghanistan. And if we don't, um, if we don't come to recognize the scale of this destruction, it's um, it's very hard to um, it's very hard to bring stability to those regions. And I think that the first set of um, wars in Afghanistan, not the first, but the uh, <laughs> the ejection of the of the Soviet occupation in the 1980s, and the way the United States and others basically walked away from Afghanistan, and de- demonstrate uh, how, how damaging um, this kind of attitude can be. Uh, high mortality, wholesale destruction, and the consequences are instability and possibly more war. Finally, the third proposition, also a controversial one, is that the American public is essentially indifferent to these casualties and this indifference has consequences. Now this is more speculative on my part, but I, I will just briefly explain and we can discuss it if you like. Um, how do we measure indifference? This is a, a almost a philosophical question, um, but I think it can be asked in the sense that uh, we, we pay a great deal of attention, Americans do, to the casualties of war that are Americans and we pay very little attention to the casualties of war who are not Americans. So, for example, one opinion survey, which I think is quite relevant, is uh, around 2007. This is rarely asked, by the way, in public opinion surveys, so I have to sort of pick and choose uh, little pieces of information here and there. There was a survey in 2007 that asked an American audience how many American soldiers had died in Iraq. And remarkably enough, the average answer was almost exactly correct. It was about 3,000 at that time. Then the pollster asked how many Iraqis have died in the war in Iraq. And at a time where the, where the Hopkins survey had estimated mortality to be 600,000, uh, the average answer of this Uh, in this survey was 9,000. So there was very little either attention to the the cost of war, the human cost of war in Iraq, or uh, just a a kind of indifference toward them. And there were other surveys that I think indicated the same kind of thing. For example, one other I'll cite is that uh, it was asked, I think, in 2008, if we withdraw from Iraq, uh, chaos may return to, Ar- to Iraq. Uh, would you be in favor of withdrawing under such circumstances? And an overwhelming majority said yes. They wanted to get out of Iraq regardless of the of the consequences for the Iraqis. So I think that the, 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 to the extent we've been measuring public opinion, there was also some very indicative polls in, in v- uh, during the Vietnam period, uh, even though there was a large anti-war movement. Um, very few people were against the war because of concern for Vietnamese themselves. This is not to say that everybody is indifferent, of course that's not the case, but as a society we do tend to be so. There are very few cultural representations of the victims of the war, the native populations. We have very, very few. You can go back to the Korean War, Vietnam War, and uh, the Iraq War and Afghanistan, and think about how many times you've seen any kind of sort of representation of uh, people on the ground in those wars, during the war, and, and what, how they believed, what, they, what their views were, what, what, what was happening to them, um, how they viewed the United States, uh, et cetera. Well, there just are very, very few. Uh, There are very few accounts uh, still today uh, in English uh, of these wars. Uh, Interestingly enough, um, the Iraq war, because of the capacity of some people to start blogs, um, we have more attitudes from Iraqis in English language blogs and Arabic, if you read Arabic, which I do not, um, than we had from the Vietnamese or from the Koreans. So there is more today than there had been, but still those blogs rarely made it into sort of the mainstream media in the United States. And finally, expressions of political and military leaders, I've, thrown, I've chosen three of my favorites to uh, to quote. Um, Douglas MacArthur um, on the left was, of course, the commander in Korea uh, for a time, and he wanted to use uh, atomic weapons against China and against North Korea uh, to end the war. You can imagine what the human costs would have been from that. Richard Nixon also uh, wanted to use ato- or th- threatened from time to time to use nuclear weapons in in Vietnam, uh, and of course he conducted strategic bombing of the North um, when the uh, when the peace agreement was not quite to his liking. Donald Rumsfeld at one point said, we don't kill civilians, only terrorists kill civilians, a kind of self-delusion that I think was quite apparent during the Bush administration. So if we have indifference, what are, this, what are, the, what are the explanations for indifference? And these, these things I lay out in, in my book in some detail a Little hard to be brief to to explain them but but um, there are three that I consider. The first is uh, a kind of a variant on what you've heard, like uh, manifest destiny or American exceptionalism. Uh, this uh, front the frontier myth is a um, is an intellectual framework for understanding uh, America's expansion across Uh, European settlers' expansion across the North American continent, and then uh, global activism beginning with the Philippines uh, in in, uh, 1898. Um, This is developed by a, I think, a brilliant cultural historian named Richard Slotkin in a trilogy, the first one of which is called Regeneration Through Violence. He starts with the Puritans, English Puritans, and goes to up through the Vietnam War, uh, and it basically that um, it is in the frontier, it is on the frontier that American values of self-sufficiency and, and individualism and, and uh, democracy and so on are forged, but the frontier means taming the wilderness, and in the wilderness there are savages. And we have to subdue the savage, tame the wilderness in order to reap the bounty, uh, which is a divine uh, providence. So uh, the frontier myth, uh, you can see this applied to, um, to things even today. Language about the frontier, language about cowboys and Indians. Um, this was true at the, begin- at the outset of the Iraq War. Uh, a really brilliant uh, evocation of this comes from Susan Faludi's book The Terror Dream if you have a chance to pick it up this is this is the re- this was actually the reaction to 911 but it included the beginning of the war in Iraq and she does this through a through a sort of a gender lens but it's really astonishing i mean i'd forgotten how many times there were references to you know how we had to be manly and how we had to you know whip the savage and how we had to bring civilization to the Middle East and, and all these very aggressive, uh, it wasn't just about chasing bin Laden, uh, it wasn't just about um, uh, destroying Al-Qaeda, it was really a civilizational assault that was based on the same values that informed American expansion across the continent and then later throughout the world, and it's quite a brilliant analysis, I think I highly recommend it. A second explanation for indifference, of course, is racism, the, the wars I'm talking about all take place in Asia, uh, it's fairly well established that people care more about their own uh, than they do about others, um, and I think that racism has played a role in in fostering indifference, but I don't think it's the only explanation, and so but it needs to be mentioned. And the third is a very interesting set of theories that were developed uh, in the 1960s and have been uh, elaborated by social psychologists mainly uh, in the ensuing uh, 30 or 40 years and that is so called just world theory and some some variations on this and this is a little hard to explain but it just very briefly um, it holds that uh, people like to think of their world as being orderly and just this is the way we deal with randomness and and other things that can be very psychologically threatening to us, um, and particularly in developed societies, we believe it's not only orderly, but it's essentially a just world. Things happen because they're supposed to happen. Now we know that's not literally true, but yet we carry that kind of that construct forward. And when things do go wrong, when something bad happens, one of the ways we explain it is that it is uh, it is a irrational um, act or indeed if someone if you can identify somebody who is involved in this, you tend to blame them, even if they 're a victim of what has gone wrong so to give you an illustration um, i don 't know if you have beggars in London, but we have them in Boston and if you walk down the street and you see somebody who 's begging right you have a, you have a reaction to that person now, maybe the people in this room give them uh, give them money but Most people don't. Most people exhibit indifference toward the beggar, and they exhibit indifference toward the beggar because we think, in America anyway, that nobody should be begging in America. There's always something that they can do to make ends meet, either get a job or go to a charity. Um, They shouldn't be begging. They shouldn't be confronting us about their condition on the street. Some people... uh, even go further and they get hostile toward the beggar. They may not do something, but they feel hostility and they blame the beggar for his or her condition. Well, this has been proven many, many times in experiments. Uh, it's disturbing, but it's, this is the way it is. And I took these reactions, these theories, and applied them to the war, to the whole society, in the following way. The wars went badly, all these wars began to go badly and we needed to deal with the psychological trauma of not only the wars going badly but there being an enormous amount of violence in the wars. Things were happening in Korea, in Vietnam, in Iraq, in Afghanistan that were horrendous. Even though we might not be paying a lot of attention to it, maybe the news media isn't reporting it as thoroughly as it should, nevertheless we know there's a lot of violence and a lot of the injustice that's going on in these countries. And so the reaction, the social, the societal reaction, is to turn away from it. It's to turn away from it and even to some extent to blame it on the victims of the violence, the population, the civilian population. So I think that the combination of these things, sort of an intellectual construct about American exceptionalism, uh sort of garden-variety racism, and uh, this inability to come to terms with the psychological trauma of violence that we were involved in uh, uh, in fomenting uh, accounts for a very broad indifference in this society. And finally, what are the consequences of indifference? Well, uh, I already talked about the reputational cost for the United States. I think this is very important, um, hard to measure still, but nevertheless, it's there. Uh, I also mentioned the instability in the affected regions, the Afghanistan. I think it'll be very, um, it'll be very interesting, more than interesting, very important to see what happens in Iraq as the United States withdraws um, and they try to make it on their own, even with their oil resources. I think it's going to be an unstable country for a long time, the region is also affected in various ways. Uh, and But most importantly, what we haven't talked about is that I believe that indifference, social and political indifference within the society um, gives a kind of permission uh, to political leaders and military leaders to conduct future wars. If there's no real accountability for the scale of destruction in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, it can be said, well, um, you know, Iran uh, needs uh, to be taught a lesson and uh, let's, uh, let's do better to Iran what we, uh, what we tried to do in Iraq and Afghanistan. And if there's no, if there's no real accounting for what happened, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that's quite possible. Now, I don't think it's going to happen with respect to Iran because I think it's too soon after the war. But, but it, it, some future time, there's going to be a situation that will call for large-scale military intervention by the United States. And I'm afraid that we've learned we're learning the, the wrong lessons, partly through our own indifference. I'll just give you a quick example of something that was said in the National Journal which is a um, uh, National Review, rather, a conservative publication in the United States. Um, And it it went along the following lines and I've heard this from others. Well, a few tens of thousands of people died in Iraq and that was unfortunate collateral damage. Um, But we got rid of Saddam Hussein. We got rid of one of the biggest monsters in the world. So it was a victory it was a victory for the United States, and it's just you know, the New York Times and a bunch of you know, academics and so on who won't come to terms with this. It's really a victory, and we should be proud of it. We should own it. Um, and I think we hear that more and more, and I think we're gonna hear it from the Republican candidates uh, in order to differentiate themselves from Obama in the next year. Um, this is dangerous thinking, and it's made possible in part by our not actually appreciating what the level of destruction in Iraq has been. If you only think tens of thousands have died, and don't mention the five million displaced, and the destruction, and the widows, and the orphans, and so on, um, then it's much easier to think of this uh, as a victory. And that, I think, is probably the most dangerous consequence of all. So thank you, and I look forward to your questions.
0: Thank you very much, John, and I hope this book penetrates the indifference uh, so that next time you come, we'll maybe have a different conclusion. I've completely forgot to tell you something that the LSE people told me I had to tell you. The hashtag for Twitter. It's hash... Now, this is going to be really clever of me because it's no longer up, but it's hash LSE others, I think.
1: Was it on the first slide? Yeah, it was. There you go.
0: See, I got it right. There it is. So, anyway, now we have a bit of time for questions, so do ask, ask questions. And ideally, say who you are when you ask. Okay. Shall we just sit down? Yeah, i will yeah. take them. I don't know why I was standing up again. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, the gentleman there.
1: Can we see everybody? Yeah, which
0: do you think is better?
3: Hello. Uh, my name's Eric Hazel. Um, I'd like to put a different uh, view to you, that uh, the poli- uh, this is deliberate policy of the United States government. In the First World War, the Germans started out by a policy of frightfulness, i.e. going and daffing up the locals and shooting any, um, uh, well, uh, what what we call today terrorists. There's anyone that's opposing them. And uh, this was the policy, and it seems uh, to see that This is the policy of the United States. And I'll back it up by um, an interview uh, some American official gave uh, after the start of uh, the Iraq war. And he said uh, that um, the policy of the United States was to um, inflict casualties, uh, cause destruction, so that no other country would fancy standing up to the United States. And um, he also uh, said that um, uh, their aim was also to uh, replace their culture, that uh, the culture that they have would uh, was uh, supporting uh, the insurgency, etc. And if they had uh, McDonald's and all the rest of the American um, uh, goodies, that um, they wouldn't, uh, you know, alter their uh, alter their their culture. Uh, you are also the insurgency. Now, I just put to you that, that you know that.
0: Great. Right. Um, we might take as well a take
4: a cup uh, about three. So we'll take you two and then we'll come. Um, hello. M- my name is Lancaster. I work at the University Library. Um, um, I don't want you to be nitpicking, but um, two points which lead into each other. I- I'm sure you said that Britain didn't take part in the warring career. In fact, um, British soldiers were fighting there. Over, th- over a thousand of them died. Yeah. But... Um, um, But why were they there? Because um, I have a problem with the way you you bracketed the three wars, the war in Korea, the war in Vietnam, the war in Iraq. Now, um, I think most people would say the war in Vietnam was a national liberation movement, and America intervened unilaterally. Now, the reason the Americans and the British were in North Korea was because the United Nations decided to intervene on behalf Korea against a North Korean invasion. Now, um, I, I think it's fair to say if America hadn't intervened in Vietnam and let the NLF take over, there would have been far less death and destruction was in, than was involved in the actual war. But the fact is um, if the United Nations hadn't gone into Korea, um, since bearing in mind what's been happening in North Korea since 1953, I think the uh, People of Korea would have been worse off possibly in terms of death and destruction than as a result of the actual war because um, um, uh, I can actually prove that quite easily because when the war in Korea ended um, the communists took very many prisoners and they were given the option of remaining in the north only a handful chose to do so now the Americans and British took very many prisoners um, tens of thousands of whom refused to return to the North. So, um, uh, but just my final point, you, um, you said that the war in Korea is very little discussed and you're absolutely right about that. But one, one reason it isn't discussed is because I don't think there's a single person in the Western world or anywhere else who actually thinks that South Korea would have been better off had we let the North Koreans take over. So you can't really bracket it with a war in Vietnam in the way that you did.
0: I'm sorry, I let you... And the person
4: beside you had a question. Um, my name's is Theobald. I'm just from around London. I um, just wanted to ask you, um, to what extent do you think that the scale, intensity and, uh, and duration of the insurgency in Iraq um, was due to the lack of US planning for the aftermath of the war?
1: So, I'm sorry, say that again?
4: Um, to what extent do you think that the, um, the scale, duration and intensity of the insurgency in Iraq... Um, was due to the lack of U.S. planning for the aftermath of the war.
1: Um, well, three good questions. Um, the uh, you know I think that what you were citing is is um, not necessarily a policy of the U.S. Sometimes generals speak um, in ways that just reflect their own views rather than what is policy. Um, uh, I, I do think that there was an attitude, and I think attitude is slightly different from policy. We often don't know, in fact, what the policies are because they are classified. I mean, the policies about rules of engagement, for example, are not, um, uh, are not widely known. Um, but I do think the, the, the most important of the th- things that you mentioned that this general said was the, the demonstration effect of the Iraq war. And this was talked about quite a bit at the time, that is that you know the the shock and awe, remember shock and awe that Cheney used to talk about, um, that this was going to demonstrate u.s power uh, after a period where you know it had appeared that the United States may have lost its will to uh, to exert such power, uh, and this was supposed to be. Um, a remedy for that weakness, and and I think you know, in, in effect, uh, it did exactly the opposite. It just made it more difficult for the United States now to act militarily in the world. I think on that scale, certainly they're acting in, um, as in Libya in in, in smaller ways, um, but I don't think that, that that quite rises to the to the level of of policy. It's more in the in the realm of attitudes. Um, and the question of, of bracketing the three wars together—it uh, yes, it's true—and I do go into this in some detail in the book about how the wars are different. Um, Korea was different, um, certainly because Truman was responding to a direct attack from North Korea on South Korea. Um, but I would also recommend the the work of. Bruce Cummings, the historian at the University of Chicago, is probably the most uh, has the most thorough reckoning of the pre-war history um, in Korea and how the United States in particular, um, really f- forfeited some opportunities to um, um, to unify the island or at least to give voice to more democratic forces uh, on the peninsula rather than the on the peninsula that were um, uh, ready to govern and not allowed to govern and instead installed uh, Sigmund Rhee as a strong man who declared a state when there wasn't supposed to declare a state um, and that, you know, suppressed um, leftist uh, activists, not necessarily communists, not necessarily violent, but jailed hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, it was a pretty tawdry history of what was going on in South Korea before 1950, before June 1950, and the United States was completely supportive of it. Now, um, does that justify North Korea's invasion? No, obviously. Um, But, it does explain a context for war in which war may not have been necessary and our actions uh, actually helped um, lead to war. That's one set of concerns. Um, the other thing I would say about uh, about North Korea, uh, undoubtedly now one of the real truly, um, uh, you know, Cauldrons of crazy in the world and, and with very decidedly bad results for ordinary Koreans living in the North. Um, but I would, uh, I, I think it's too facile to say that the North Korea of today would prove what a Korea would have been like had the United States not resisted. First of all, I'm not saying that the United States should not have fought in Korea. I'm not saying that the United, I'm not making a judgment about the decisions to enter any of those wars. Um, but I also think that North Korea is in some respects the way it is today because of the way the war in, ni- in the 1950s was fought. Um, now that's just pure speculation because we don't know. We don't know what the alternative would have been. Um, but I do believe that uh, at the at a very, at the minimum, the war could have ended in three months after it began, when MacArthur landed in Incheon and, and, and they drove the North Koreans back behind the armistice line. And probably two million, two and a half million people would not have been killed, at a minimum. But it was a certain kind of arrogance A desire for rollback of communism, um, uh, uh, a desire to teach China a lesson, that um, led MacArthur um, to drive to the to the border with China, and of course, what happened—the Chinese entered the war. Um, So, you know, it's easy in retrospect to say those things, but at the time, it was being said. Well, why are we continuing the war? We've done what we're supposed to do. A lot of people would have been saved. Um third question um, was about the intensity of the insurgencies in Iraq and
0: whether there were enough troops for the occupation, would it have been different?
1: yeah, well, my sense is that the you know the, the the Sunni insurgencies, and I and I say insurgencies advisedly because there were at one point counted something like eighty different groups that had risen up to uh, fight the occupation and to fight other, you know, fight Shia, uh, fight among themselves perhaps, um, and it was very decentralized, there were no demands made apart from you know, rejecting the occupation. There was no ideology, there were no leaders, particularly, of these insurgencies. They were very spontaneous, and this is why I think that they were caused by the way the United States was conducting the war, applying a lot of firepower and not able to, to guarantee security on the ground. So if there had been more troops Uh, at the outset, more U.S. troops, it is conceivable, although not a certainty, that um, Iraqis, ordinary Iraqis would have felt more secure uh, under the occupation and less likely to resist it. Now, that's speculative, and there's a big debate about how many troops you need for counterinsurgency and whether the U.S. forces are really trained for counterinsurgency. But not as well-trained, in fact, as the British Army is. Um, but I think that it's it, the the debate over troops is an interesting one because of the way that it was joined by the political leadership in opposition to the military leadership in the United States and what the consequences apparently were. I mean, we know in part what the consequences were, right? I mean, we know what happened in the war, and I think a lot of it had to do with the size of the force. Uh, but it may have been that there would have been a resistance regardless. There may have been a very large resistance to occupation anyway because of the, the strong feelings that the Iraqis had about that. Is that answer your question? Okay.
0: Yes, the gentleman at the back.
5: And then... Uh, thank you. Thank you. Emma from... National University of Defense Technology China and present a visiting scholar uh, at King's College London um, I can feel your research uh, express a sense of uh, humanity uh, careness so I want to say the first words is thank you and my uh, question is um, I think the war, the effect or the result of a war, mainly, uh, mainly are decided by the strategy, tacti- uh, tactics, and equipments. And uh, in your research, do you mention the technology factors to affect their, the clarity, a, propor- a proportion of a clarity? And with the development of science and technology, and just recently, the United States military troops in Middle East is likely to use UAV to kill terror, uh, organiza- high rank leaders of terrorism organizations. So based on your research, um, how do you think the future trend of uh, the revolution in military affairs uh, and uh, with the side view of uh, technology. and Thank you. Um, hello, I'm Tom, working at LSE, uh, the LSE. Um, I was wondering, given your book, um, how Libya's changed attitudes towards conflict or future conflict amongst the United States, both amongst the people and the politicians. Um, I have a fear that we have collectively short memories and I'm quite interested to know what what the kind of general feeling is now that it seems to us so far been a successful intervention. Uh,
0: my name is Gunvar, I'm a student at LSE and I'm afraid my question is not very academic but I'm just very curious when I hear you describing uh, the American society and the ignorance uh, they have uh, when it comes to the lack of concern of the the suffering of the others you also describe the acceptance of torture which is an absolute right that uh, I'm very surprised that there is that high high number that accept it is this a true picture of the American society and why is it and if so, can you, can you explain why it is like that?
1: OK. Um, well, beginning with the first question, um, I think there's a, there's a very interesting uh, and important um, development in warfare that Obama has actually uh, accelerated. Uh, and that 's the use of drones and the use of uh, of special ops assassination teams um, and i th- and my guess is although i don 't i've never actually read that this is the case, but I think it probably is that it, it's a response to the failure of the Iraq war and the um, uncertain outcome or failure of the Afghan war um, Putting many many American soldiers at risk. This is, of course, the principal concern of a president, and um, uh, not getting very good results. Uh, spending a huge amount of money as well. Um, now, I did not go into the drone question in my book in part because it really began to become very prominent uh, only in the last year or so. You know, you complete a book often a year before it appears, so. Um, I didn't write about it much, but I think that the um, the number of uh, drone attacks, use of drones, the possibility of a drone arms race, proliferation of drones to other countries, um, the, uh, the versatility of drones, they can be extremely small, um, and therefore attack just about anywhere. Um, Including with weapons that are unconventional, and uh, along with that, the use of these assassination teams uh, that the United States is um, sending around the Middle East. Uh, right after the Bin Laden killing, uh, one of the generals uh, or admirals that was in charge of the SEAL team unit was was interviewed by a by a v- admiring journalist who was wondering how, you know, how they did this and how wonderful this thing was and you know, how, did, how did you possibly pull off this operation he said well you know we, we do this 10 or 20 times a day not training killing killing people with assassination teams 10 or 20 times a day and that's what he acknowledged on television so this, something's happening here that we need to pay attention to uh, lots of lots of reasons- you know lots of reasons to pay attention to it, not least are legal reasons that this does not seem to be uh completely uh kosher under international law so I think that the the drone thing is really something to pay attention to. I wish I had paid attention to it in this book because in part it also affects the civilian issue that it's claimed that there are fewer civilians that are being killed, but, but there are lots and lots of complaints in Pakistan particularly that, that civilians are being killed in these drone attacks. So it's a very important issue for lots of different reasons. Um, the question on Libya, um, you know, it's interesting that the Libyan war did not really stir much passion one way or the other in the United States. Uh, partly, I think, because the United States was not involved uh, on the ground with troops. It was involved, of course, with NATO. And, and um, uh, interestingly enough, the Republican candidates for president now are criticizing Obama for leading from behind. This phrase of leading from behind is so un-American that uh, he might pay a political price for for doing that. Um, but I I think Libya is another place to pay attention to because you know the the rationale uh, w- uh, was to protect civilians, right? And this is an unusual uh, primary rationale for going to war, participating in a war. And I think it's very important to see just how many civilians actually died uh, as a result of the, of the actions, but also, perhaps more importantly, what's going to happen to Libya uh, in the wake of this. Uh, I mean, the day after Gaddafi was, was killed, the head of the provisional Council um, said that Libya was likely to reinstitute Sharia law and Um, polygamy—not—not a a particularly uh, happy outcome for women in Libya. So um, it's important, you know, in this case, it's very different from the other wars. So it's it's hard to hard to say anything in general that Libya somehow illustrates something the other wars also illustrated. But I think that it's. Um, it is a, a case in which we have to, we still have to be very, even if we're going in for the best of intentions, a humanitarian intervention, um, that people who have been very important figures in the human rights movement, like Samantha Power, have apparently were advocating within the White House, um, we still have to be careful how it's done, what the consequences are, what we do when the shooting stops. Once the shooting stops, we're still responsible uh, for that country uh, to some extent. Um, Am I giving a true picture of American society? Well, uh, I've been an American for a long time. (laughs) Um, I think that the thing that is... Indisputable, although difficult to prove, is this indifference. Where the indifference comes from, and what its manifestations are, is harder to capture without a lot of public opinion polling, a lot of survey data, which doesn't really exist. Um, And the um, I was asked a question yesterday about about whether it's ignorance. Or indifference. There's a difference between ignorance and indifference, right? And I think that that is true. There is a difference, and it's an important difference. Uh, But it's very hard to believe that the American public, you know, 70, 80% of the American public, was unaware of the level of violence in Iraq. They may not have known much about the texture of the violence, exactly what was happening, but they certainly knew that it was a very, very violent war by 2006. And some of these surveys that I was citing earlier were, ta- were taken after that. Um, and most of these surveys begin with a question like, are you aware that there's a violent war in Iraq or something like that? Um and that this establishes a baseline for some knowledge um, and ignorance. And I think most, most people uh, knew that there was a very violent war going on. They certainly knew it during the Vietnam War, and they knew it during Korea. And yet, um, the shreds of evidence that we do have point all toward a very high level of indifference, not merely ignorance.
0: Before I ask the next, I just want to make a little comment myself on sure. the question, and then I'll go straight to other people. I mean, my comment is this: that I, my, I do think that actually airstrikes have become and drones have become much more precise. And what you see coming out of, for instance, the UN figures on civilian casualties in Afghanistan, that because airstrikes have become much more precise most of the civilian casualties are actually caused by insurgents rather than caused by airstrikes. But I don't think that's an argument. I mean, I still think there's a huge problem there. And the problem is this, and the same is true of drones as well, that actually what happens is, and and this is how Afghans see it, what happens is that the strikes provoke an insurgent counterattack and so Afghans still blame NATO for the civilian casualties because they think what NATO's been doing is provoking conflict and I think you can make a very similar argument in the case of Libya that in Libya, I mean as far as I can tell from talking to NATO people and looking at the figures actually the civilian casualties from the airstrikes have been very very small however what NATO was doing was not a humanitarian intervention even though the goal was the protection of civilians it was actually war fighting and so in fact what NATO was doing was coming in on the side of the rebels and you can argue about whether that was a good thing to do or a bad thing to do I'm I'm personally very torn because I think it's great that Gaddafi has gone but at the same time many people died in the fighting between the rebels and the Gaddafi forces so people died because it was a war. And, of course, all the points that you make about the aftermath, it's going to be very, very difficult to establish a stable democracy. So that was just the comment I wanted Mm -hmm. to make, that I think it's not just the direct effects of airstrikes, it's the way this method of war fighting um, produces conflict in which people get killed. My question really is, I mean, I found the most fascinating part of your book was about this issue of indifference and how it's produced, but I wonder if, and I've now read quite a lot of American writing about how there's something peculiar about the way the Indians were exterminated and the frontier mentality, and so there's something special to American culture. But I actually wonder whether it is really something special about American culture or whether it's actually born of a war mentality. I think what's fascinating in the world today is that there's a growing human rights consciousness. Uh, But that human rights consciousness seems to be much stronger in maybe here in Europe than it is in the United States. And just to give you an example, I think you could make just the same case about Israel about indifference among Israelis to Palestinian civilians. You know, when a Palestinian uh, suicide bomber kills Israeli civilians, everybody's horrified. This is a terrorist attack. When an Israeli airstrike hits a Hamas militant and then kills a lot of civilians, even if the number of civilians killed is greater than the number of the civilians killed by Palestinians, it's not viewed in the same way. It's viewed as an unfortunate side effect of war, that the war is right. And I just wonder if it isn't something about the nature of war, this indifference, rather than something peculiar to America.
1: Right. Well, I think that this is a question that... um, I can't answer sufficiently because I haven't studied other societies in the same way. Um, It's interesting that Israel is also a settler nation, and I think there's something about that. Uh, It's a little hard to sort out, but I think there is um, a part of the mentality of of settler nations. uh, It's also true in South Africa to some extent. Um, is to be aggressive to to, uh, to um, have a kind of spiritual, if, if you will, uh, attachment to the land and and um, a sense of rightness about about the, s- the settlement itself. Um, I don't think ultimately that the United States's indifference is different from perhaps. Britain's during its colonial wars, or France during the war in Algeria, I wanted to do the, I wanted to, I wanted to uh, have a chapter on those, yeah, (laughs) Um, but I just couldn't get to it. But I think that um, it's probably, or or the Soviets, or you know the the Chinese in their various ways, the Japanese in the various ways, and so on. I mean, I don't think that it's 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 either purely. American or, or Western or anything of that nature. I think it is much more fundamental to empire. Um, and um, uh, But I, I think the one difference that is perhaps identifiable, and this is a slight difference in the larger context we're discussing, is the view of violence itself, the use of violence. I think the British and the French, case, the other cases I know best, um, really view violence instrumentally um, and Americans have viewed it as kind of morally redemptive
0: mm.
1: and that's dangerous I think it's more dangerous although the outcomes may not be uh, any different
0: okay now we've got I guess having a look can you all if you all want to ask questions can I because we've only got seven minutes can I ask you to be a minute each? Starting with you. <laughs> <laughs> or less than a minute
3: each. Hi. It, I, I actually want to go further than Professor Caldor. It just seems to me like an over-engineered argument. If people can know that there are people starving in the world and be indifferent to that, um, uh, why is that so different? And that's true of every country. Who needs a settler myth? Who needs any of these extended explanations? What is actually surprising is that we've started to get people to... Notice other people around the world and to try and do something about it. That's actually what's surprising. That's what's atypical. What you're describing is, is very standard, and sadly, very standard human behavior in every society with no special explanation. But that, that's just a suggestion, of course.
0: Okay. Over here.
2: Hi, my, my question is with respect to one of your propositions. You mentioned that uh, the, the result of. Uh, <gasps> High mortality is related to uh, low number of uh, of troops on on, on ground. Uh, I'm wondering what you consider as the position of intelligence in in, in this proposition, because uh, you you have a large temporal dimension in your research. You start from, um, you, you look at Vietnam, you look at Korea, and then you have Iraq and Afghanistan where intelligence plays a big role on on uh, counterinsurgency efforts, um, so I guess my question is: If um, well, you say more troops would would could amount to uh, less mortality, wouldn't you say more intelligence reliance on more intelligence would give the same result?
0: Okay, and we have two here in the front. Uh, there's so much money to be made in in producing weaponry, and so while indifference is out there, yes, people just don't care about the fact that there's more and more people making a lot of money
2: in this game. Is that true?
5: Yeah, hi. Uh, My question is related with the uh, indifference uh, among the general public in uh, the United States. Is that partially due to the, uh, how to say, the bias in media or is it due to the uh, psychological factor of the U.S. public that we are fighting for democracy, we are li- liberating the uh, Iraqi people from the dictator of Saddam Hussein. Therefore, by arguing such, when the goal of war was justified, the method of the war is also justified, which is the uh, maybe the explain better of the indifference in the U.S. society.
6: Hi, uh, I've been an American for a while too, actually. As, long as I am. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but uh, my, my question is actually um, related to the media question. If you look at the incentives of the media in the United States, which is very corporate run, uh... the incentives are that the media wants everybody to keep watching and so what their goals are uh, are to make people interested in success stories and make them disgusted but not so disgusted that they would turn away and turn off the TV in horror stories and the most efficient way they would do that is with a success story they want to show a successful American and with a horror story they would want to show a, a dead American um... And uh, the same things with politicians. You know, the incentives of politicians aren't to be compassionate. If you're going to be the president of the United States, you can't show um, that you're caring about the other side because you can't get votes. And uh, even with these precision missiles uh, and things, um, I don't understand how a missile that would explode uh, things for a quarter mile could be precision. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk about a quote-unquote propaganda, not in uh, term like that or, or media bias uh, or you know financial incentives for ignoring civilians.
0: And then one last question there, and then... Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Um, this would be also a media question. Um, what, uh, how do you see the role of the media in facilitating the indifference that you describe and has this role changed along the years and with the emergence of new media? Well, uh, we have three three media questions, so I'll start with those. Um, I I discuss news media a fair amount in the book, and I think that there are, um, uh, news media tends to do the same thing in every war, which is uh, sort of rally around the flag effect at the outset. And then as things begin to go badly, they do tend to report it, but it's often a story about what's going on in Washington um, and within the United States rather than what's going on um, in Korea, Vietnam, or Iraq. There is reporting from those countries, of course, sometimes very brave reporting, um, but it tends to be uh, of a kind that... um, uh, has, you know, the reporters have difficulty, to give them credit, they have difficulty seeing the whole of a war. And so what they tend to report is what they can actually see. Um, and the ones who are, give the overview tend to give an overview from Washington. So I think that the the bias, there is bias there. There's, there can be bias for lots of different reasons, partly to sort of sell newspapers, so to speak, or to um, uh, not offend the government. And there's a lot of... Int- Uh, Intimidation of news organizations. Um, uh, When Harrison Salisbury was reporting the bombing of North Vietnam, the White House was demanding that he be fired. Um, You know, very senior correspondent for the New York Times. Um, So all these things, all these points you make, I think, are are relevant, Um, uh, and a lot can be said about it, but we don't have time. I think the new media, just one thing about the new media, I don't think new media made much difference uh, in the Iraq war, interestingly enough. I think the new media, meaning the Internet um, and blogs, uh, were basically reporting, uh, were, were relaying reports that were occurring in the old media and making comments about them. There was analysis and there was opinion, but there was very little original reporting that was going on in the new media, um, because it's difficult difficult to do that kind of reporting. Um, Yes, it's true that there's a lot of money in weaponry, but I don't actually think, I did a book on the arms trade a few years ago, and and I'm not convinced that politicians and military folks really want to go to war uh, because they have the toys or because the arms industry is pushing them. Uh, I don't. I don't think that dynamic is really decisive. That's not to say that generals don't want everything they can possibly have in their arsenal. They do. And of course, there's a lot of politics involved in acquisition of weapons. But um, the relationship, I think, is a little less interesting than you might think. Um, on the role of intelligence, um, it's a good question, and um, I just say very briefly that intelligence is absolutely crucial to these kinds of wars because you know the enemy so to speak is not in uniform right and so if you don't have good intelligence you're just firing into the mass basically of Iraqis or Vietnamese or whomever Um, and this has been a very intense internal debate within the US military that that we went into Iraq without good intelligence never developed good intelligence And you can have all the precision guide instruments you can want, but if you don't know where to put them, uh, you're still going to have um, uh, some bad outcomes. Um, And then uh, whether or not this is uh, an over-engineered argument, I like that term. um you know one could say that about indifference i think potentially one could say that although i, I find so many people um sort of offended by the idea that they were indifferent and 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 um that it is um it comes as a it comes as a uh, surprise to many people that i make this argument um, that it's not obvious to most people. Um, and it does have consequences that I don't think have been widely appreciated. This consequence about declaring victory, I think, is very, very important. And I, you know, if you follow the American news media, I think you're going to see some of this in the coming weeks as the U.S. withdraws. There will be a debate that will be forced by the old pro-war um, intelligentsia that will say, this really was a victory, and we need to acknowledge it as a victory. Um, and there won't be that much pushback, and there won't be much pushback because um, there's a lot of indifference, uh, and it has consequences. And part of part of what this book is really about, and I'll end with this, it's not just about the indifference, of course. It's about what happens to civilians and why uh, things happen to civilians, and we don't have many accounts of this. Um, and then, you know, the question naturally came to me was, why isn't there more caring? Why isn't there more coverage? Why don't we know more? And that's why I got into the arguments about indifference. Um, but it is absolutely true that there is a kind of a a very troubling uh, possibility that this is a universal kind of reaction to war uh, and very, very difficult to overcome. And I don't think I have good remedies. Um, apart from just trying to find out and understand it more deeply
0: well thank you very much and I think as you could see we could have gone on for ages (laughs) but we've come to an end now and John will be signing books outside if anybody wants to get a book Um, and I read it and I thought it was gripping so um, I hope you you do too So thank you very
1: much. Thank you, very good audience.